Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. Then he was in forensics. Then he was a New South Wales firefighter. This season of Loose Units is called Hot Stuff Coming Through. And apart from having an incredibly cool and stupid name, it's going to reveal the untold side of being a firefighter in Australia. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Hot Stuff Coming Through. Every week I chat with my dad who used to be a cop and then he was a fireman. But this season, it's all about the hot stuff. Hence Paul, the title. Paul, yes, yes. can I just, because um, I'm sure the, the listeners would love to know what I'm about to ask you. Sure, sure. And that is that, you know, well, you don't know because you've never... <laughs> You've probably never put out a fire. I have, and I'll tell that story later in the show if you like, but go That's on. That's not to do with the, when you made napalm, is it? Uh, Ixnay on the apalm nay. Dad, what were you going to say? Well, what I was going to say, Paul, is that, you know, you've called this podcast hot stuff coming through, but you know when you put a fire out, that's actually generally cold stuff coming through? <laughs> Call it fucking loose units, cold stuff coming through. No, but I mean, if you put a fire out, you don't sort of have hot fluid coming out of, unless you were talking about something else that's sure, highly yeah, offensive. If, if this podcast was called Hot Fluid Coming Through, we would not be listened to by true, you know, true, families. True. Not wholesome. I mean, hot stuff coming through, that's a backdraft, isn't it? Surely. Oh, I see you're talking about. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Cool. I mean, fire, I'm, ac- fire. I'm actually being lewd on purpose, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Dad, uh, first of all, congratulations on your new microphone. It sounds beautiful. But you um, managed to organise uh, a, a really beautiful um, microphone, mm-hmm. and it's very technical uh, to be to be delivered here last Friday, and, and we're actually testing it uh, as as we record this session today. It's the maiden voyage, yeah. and it's beautiful it, to look at. It's um, it's sort of got a um, a big round sort of knobby thing on the end. Oh, I love those. And it's uh, perforated. Uh, oh, that sounds painful. And it weighs probably about a kilo. And it's oh, um, it's too much it's, information. It's it's nice, and it's, it's a- about um, four inches long, which is not that big actually. I'd, but no, I mean it's almost a chode at that point. Mm. But and you, you plug various it? devices into it, so that's a bit weird. It's like a <laughs> Prince Charles. Is that what it's called? What's it called? <laughs> Prince uh, Prince Albert. I've got to make sure I don't get my mouth too close to it. No, no. You might have to just swab it before you use it. Mm. Don't look directly at it or it will spit at you. And no, I'm thinking of cobras. Or am I? I am. Listen, every week we typically go through, I would say for lack of a better term, adventures that you had. But before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to read a message we uh, we got a few days ago from a listener called Hector Thompson. Hi, I'm a listener from Scotland. I've just gone through my training as a firefighter and have my first shift on the 11th of May. 
Just wanted to say thanks to you and your dad as I listened to your podcast while driving to and from my training every week. Sorry, I just I couldn't resist. Bloody love that accent. What Hector is saying, Dad, is that driving to and from training every week is 250 miles a week. That's um, Which in Australian terms, Hector? Is it, it's Hector, isn't it? Mm, Hector. Hector, that's actually, maybe in Scotland, that's a massive distance. But in Australia, people just do that on their way to work. Because we have a, a different of, concept here, of course, of, there, um, of mm, travel. There are big gaps between things here, obviously. Mm, mm. But Hector goes on to say, you guys are so funny and interesting and your dad's stories really made me feel proud to be entering into this world. So a massive thank you to both of you. Uh, I would like all listeners to just pour as much good energy across the seas as they can towards Hector for his first shift as a firefighter in Scotland on the 11th of May. So good luck, Hector. You're well, Hector, uh, of course, you're, you're coming into your summer. As as we um, being on the uh, other side of the world, we're coming into winter. So I hope on your first shift that you experience sheer sort of adrenaline, and I hope I hope for your sake something really exciting happens. And it's on the uh, it's on the cards, of course. Uh, you, you, you're probably going to be incredibly well trained and, and bursting to go, and you'll be pumped and then. That first shift you do when they actually, when you go to a real job and you're under siren, it's going to be thrilling, and yeah. um, it'll it'll be it'll be wonderful. And I hope you really really enjoy the uh, the career you've chosen. Good luck, actor. Okay, so Dad, what have you got lined up for listeners and myself this week in terms of stories from the fire brigade? I was a uh, relieving firefighter who worked out of DY, which was called Sixty Nine at the time and probably still is yep so i was the re- relieving firefighter out of dy and there was uh the station officer and uh you know the normal guys there was a beautiful uh section out the back of dy police station uh, dy fire station uh i occasionally get confused because i funnily enough worked at both of them and they're opposite each other did you was that ever weird for you leaving one building and seeing people from your previous job looking at you did you ever get uh, noticed at any point uh yeah occasionally but um, your mother, mm-hmm. um, Christine, she actually worked at DY Police Station, which was di- diagonally opposite the fire station. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? Not- like on a corner opposite each other, you've got the fire station and the police station. Well, uh, what listeners may not know is that uh, Penguin Publishing, their headquarters in Sydney, is literally across the road from the old North Sydney Police Station where you know you spent most of your time in general duties. So mm-hmm. at the same time as I was kind of, you know, pitching the second book, I just pointed out the window towards the building where you used to work. Amazing. I, I think it helped. I think it actually helped get things over the line. Mm-hmm. You know. That's amazing. So actually when I was a young police officer, occasionally, not yeah. that often, but occasionally I used to look across to DY fire station, mm-hmm. which was built in the nineteen twenties. And I kind of occasionally used to think, wow, I wouldn't mind being a fireman. Isn't that weird? Interesting. And then years and years later, uh, to get a position at that station as a relieving firefighter, I have mentioned to the uh, the listeners what a relieving firefighter was. Mm. Um, It was a firefighter that had what was called a base station. So DY was my base station. So I would always report to that station at the commencement of my shift, but then I could be sent anywhere in the Sydney metropolitan area. And you'd be given a certain number of hours to get to that station. And whilst you were making your way to the station you were going to relieve at because they were one man down. Oh, yes. Someone from the previous shift would get overtime. 
So you're a substitute teacher, but with a huge hose, basically. Mm, mm. Mm. You were given on the night shift, the shifts used to start at 6 p.m. Yep. And you were generally given till up till around about 10 p.m., like four hours to actually make your way to the station you were going to be at, for example, that night. But they always factored in, not that you'd use your own transport, they factored it in such a way that how long it would take you to get to that station by public transport. Not that you ever really ever used public transport. I mean, some guys used motorbikes. Mm-hmm. So they, um, I guess, um, could have gone home and maybe had a nice dinner off the record and then made their way out to uh, wherever. But the weird thing about being a relieving firefighter, it was great in that you kind of felt like a kind of a displaced person in that you really had no home. You had a base, but you were rarely, rarely there unless someone on your shift would take four weeks annual leave. Right. And sometimes you'd get the four weeks at that station. But f- relieving firefighters earned considerably more money than normal firefighters because um, of all the expenses um, incurred for, for to, you know, to get around. But yeah. it gave you an incredible insight into just what a vast city Sydney is. Um, back then they had about 80 fire stations, but also the incredible uh, diversity in the stations and the sort of work that they got depending on where they were geographically isolated. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. so which stations got more... Like, for example, what area had the most house fires? What areas had the most distinct type of jobs for you? Without wanting to make sweeping generalizations, and I hope I'm not misconstrued because I try and, um, you know, give give the facts. For example, you could work at um, Avalon Fire Station, let's, let's say, for a week. Yep. Which, I, which I did a lot, and, and you do 48 hours in four days, and you might not get called out once. You might get called out. You may get called out to something like maybe a bin light. You might have a f- house fire, very, very rare. Someone's, um, someone's prized peacock may have spontaneously combusted. Obviously, money has its own pitfalls. Yeah, but remember that story I told you about the barbecue, and we had to get yeah. that big line of hose in? Okay, that's sort of a classic for that yeah. area. Yeah. Now let's because I was a relieving firefighter based out of uh, 69DY. Now let's um, transpose a shift out to Mount Druitt. On one particular day I did out there, we did uh, 18 calls, and they were all fires. Jesus. So does that perhaps tell you something? And the types of fires, I'm not going to go right into the um, into the types of fires, but some of them did involve uh, science um, laboratories in high schools, grass fires, a lot of just, you know, stuff uh that's the when i rocked up to mount druitt fire station back in the 90s uh the first thing that i noticed was that the entire fire station was wrapped in a barbed wire compound like you might find in iraq right. and all the windows were uh, were chain mail meshed so what, what what would one's first thoughts be when one saw that you literally had to call in or shout for them to come and open this massive boom gate to get into the fire station right yeah, I mean, what does that tell you? What it told me and what I learnt um, subsequently was that they'd been uh, firebombed by uh, you know local kids and um, they had real problems. And when they used to leave, when they'd turn out in the fire engine, the one guy would always then, as the fire engine went out of the compound, there'd always be one guy on the crew that would then go and sort of lock with a massive chain and padlock the entrance to the fire station it always had to be locked before we could actually go out and attend a fire and you had to do that every single time we went out 
Mm, so, stressful. you know, that's yeah. kind of, yeah, pretty what, full what on. Was it, what was it like in, uh, what was it like being a firefighter in Manly? Because I know you spent a fair bit of time stationed just up the hill from where we lived. And, you know, I spent a lot of formative years in that area, but I honestly don't know of any stories involving you and putting out fires in Manly. Well, we had all the massive bushfires on the northern beaches. When I was a firefighter at Manly, well, you know that I eventually became a ladder driver. Yes. The ladder drivers were like, they used to call us koala bears. Can you think why they called us koala bears? Um, you enjoyed eating leaves? No, because we were a protected species. Yeah. And that's kind of nice, but it basically meant that we never really turned out to normal jobs. We were Did- just there specifically to go to, to major um, fires that required um, an aerial appliance. Did they call you koala bears because you also had chlamydia? No. You sure? Yep. Are you 100% sure? 100%. Okay. Um, there was a... Um, someone had donated a, a full-size snooker table yep. to the fire station. So they actually had built this amazing room out the back that was called the... Uh, snooker room. The snooker cool. room. So hang on. They, it, wait, they built a room for... That's the impression I get. I oh, get right. the impression oh, right. that... Somehow or other, they... I mean, snooker tables, uh, this is the, the professional size, massive slate. Um, re- you know, they weighed tons. And um, the story was that it had been... Um, they had to put it somewhere. And because the fire station was a two-story, it still is a two-story freestanding building, but then they needed this um, massive room. That's that's yeah. the story I had. I'm not, yeah. I can't actually verify it, but it's a good yarn anyway. But then on the nights, and this is sort of a, a mystery story... And on the nights, the station officer, he insisted on sleeping in the pool room. He normally didn't sleep in the pool room, um, and he certainly didn't go into the pool room at other times. So I was a bit of a shit stirrer, and I always wanted to find out. I always thought it was weird that the station officer, and he'd always go to bed really early, like around about maybe eight thirty, nine o'clock. And then we'd all be in the fire station watching TV, uh, you know, cooking, cleaning, uh, make, you know, sort of getting ready for bed. It was a fairly quiet station. Some, You know, you could quite often get a night in bed, although you generally backed up uh, Manly, 24 station. It was weird that I always sort of wanted to know, I mean, a lot of the firemen at DY didn't really think too much about, they just thought, oh, the station officer, he just wants to maybe go to bed early or... Um, but no one really gave it a lot of thought. But me, with my police background, I started to think that something was a little bit... Uh, there was something fishy going on. Right. So I wanted to kind of get to the... I just... There was something gnawing away at my... at my. I just had this weird feeling that something wasn't quite right. So I sort of set about doing my own little sort of mini investigation and... I actually found out what the station officer was doing in the room. Yeah. And now, at this point in the story, I'll jump forward slightly and say that I then shared my theory with my colleagues, mm-hmm. three colleagues, because I was the relieving fireman. Here's the weird thing. If I wasn't required to relieve that night, for example... Mm-hmm. I would stay on shift, but we'd be one up. So sometimes if the SO was kind, he'd say, look, you don't need to turn out. You can just chill for the entire night. No matter what happens, you don't have to attend a fire. Okay. Which is rather sweet. So the station officer, he'd gone to bed 
we're in the uh, in the mess room, and I begin to tell my three colleagues that I'm on shift with my theory, and I had pretty good proof as to what I thought was going on. I'm th- I'm riveted. Please continue. So what happened was, I managed somehow or other. Now bearing in mind, and I don't want to sort of get the listeners thinking that I spent my entire careers just wearing underpants, but you. I didn't sleep in my uniform, um, as I'm sure most fireys don't. They they have all their gear ready. Um, if they're at a really busy station, they might sleep. But at a fairly quiet station, um, yeah, we just sort of... Um, I remember I was in my underpants, and I think... This is going to sound very weird, but all the fires were getting ready to bed, get go to bed. And I convinced them somehow that just to sort of go with me and, and just sort of hang in there, and, and I would explain to them the great mystery... And what we did, we turned off the lights in the kitchen. Yep. So the entire um, top floor of DY Fire Station was in darkness. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine we then pulled the... There was a Venetian blind at the back of the uh, station looking down on the engine bay, sort of the backyard, and yeah. then to the right of the backyard which is where the fire engine would come in off the street and then they'd come onto this big concrete slab. They'd open up this massive roller door. They would then drive into the actual engine bay and then that would shut behind. And then when they got called out to a fire, the front of the engine bay, which is the front of the fire station, would then open up and they would then leave out onto the road and then you'd have a remote control that someone in the fire engine would sort of lean around and activate that. And then once you could see the the roller door going down, you'd then take off. Mm -hmm. So in effect the fire station would be secure. But there was no gate at the very back of the fire station where the fireys would all park our cars. And so imagine four firemen sort of in various straits, states of sort of, you know, dress and undress are all crouched down and we're all peering <laughs> through this little slot yep. in the in the blind. Yep. And they're all thinking, what, what's, what's going on? And... I just said, look, because opposite the fire station and opposite, but on the other side of the road, but not diagonally opposite where the police station is, is and was a Kentucky Fried Chicken shop. And at the back of the KFC shop was a car park. And we're all waiting. And then lo and behold, we see this, a woman that I would describe as moderately attractive. She hops out of this car and it's dark. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She then, and here's the, here's the rub. This is so good. She then takes her shoes off, so she's tiptoeing Obviously, through the KFC car park. Yeah, well, classy. Yep, go on. And um, she's carrying these sh- shoes, and she walks across the road into the fire station, knocks on the door to the snooker room, mm-hmm. and the door opens, and then. Um, she vanishes. Now, that was really, really exciting. And we're all sort of getting pretty excited about this is the mystery's finally been solved. And then here, this is what happened next. And this was so bad. All of a sudden, the light turns on in the kitchen. And it's the station officer looking down on us. And we're all, all beady eyed. Four fireys sort of in their undies peering through this slit in the, uh, in the window looking down, and he obviously knew what we were doing. And uh, and I copped the blame for that, and rightfully so. But 
that made my life at uh, at DY fairly miserable because he then he sort of because he he thought it was a big secret and no one knew. Right, but what he was what was he actually doing that was wrong? Well, he was shagging a lady. Well, what's the... wrong with that? Did you ever occur just turning to the station boss guy and just trying to convince him that maybe you were all excited about the new Zinger meal or something? Or did you have to fess to it straight away? Well, he's, he's come into um, a room. He probably looked up and saw all the lights out. And it was before... We used to have an official time. We'd kind of go to bed, which is around oh, about 10. That's cute. The Von Trapp family had one of those too. Yeah, but we didn't sing. and Well, we did have stairs. We could have done that. Um <laughs> I bid you adieu, adieu, yeah, whatever. But the thing is, Paul, that um, he, I, my gut feeling, he, yeah. he knew I was a bit of a shit stirrer, but I don't, I actually worked with his son yeah. in the police force. So, hang on, so you knew the son before you knew the father? Um, I'd known the father and the son. Uh-huh. I knew the father was a station officer long before. Yeah, I joined the fire brigade because uh-huh. I'd worked with his son, and his son was a really, really lovely guy. And and yeah, that's we'll we'll leave it at that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Paul, there's one more thing. I'll go on. He literally hated me, and he made my life miserable. But he knew I was an ex-police officer. He knew I was friends with his son. He knew that him being caught out... um, it was kind of one of those secrets, but it's not a secret. It's like someone thinks they've got a secret, but, but everyone that, knows, but they don't ever acknowledge. Yep, yeah, yeah. So yeah. when someone actually blows the cover, 
that person that has had the cover blown, he kind of blames the person that blew the cover. But in fact, every single person in 25 stations of Sydney knew about this situation. Okay. But okay. He, he really, 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 he hated me. And it was palpable. And he made my life rotten. He would send me to the furthermost corners of, that he possibly could. Because he would have a choice on where I went. There might be 20 stations every night that required a relieving firefighter. He would always send me to the ones most difficult to get to. Which is weird because I have to thank him because I made so much more money. But here's the weird thing. Mm -hmm. Years and years after he'd retired, he had the most fantastic collection. I mean, we're talking one of the best collections definitely in Australia of miners' lanterns, which might not sound that exciting to the listener. but Like for children? No, miners' lanterns used in mines, coal mines, back in the 19th century. I'm joking. Oh, fuck, I just got it. Okay. (laughs) All right, Paul. He called me around to his house and he said to me, and he was dying of mesothelioma. Oh, Jesus. He was dying of meso and he invited me around. I couldn't believe after all those years where I felt there was this animosity and he called me around to his house and he was so nice to me. And I realized that that was his way of saying, you know what, I was, I overreacted and he wanted to, that was his sort of way of making peace. Right. And right, he right. basically said, look, I don't care what you offer me for this amazing collection. And believe you me, it was, it was a mind blowing collection. And I bought the entire collection. It was a lifelong collection of lamps that was worthy of a museum. And, and, it was, and then he passed away. I mean, isn't that just surreal? Your life is really weird. I mean, the interconnectivity in that story. It's very odd. Do you think... So, was he one of the people who sent you... Did he send you to Mount Druitt? Yeah, he sent me all over the shop. He sent me to, to, to Penrith and... Mm. I mean, I'm talking stations that were, um, you know, 60 kilometres away. I used to sometimes come home before heading out to the... the they, were, they were called sort of out stations and I'd sometimes come home and have a nice meal and say goodnight to you kids. Mm-hmm. And just because I had four hours. I remember... I distinctly remember you kind of, you know, popping back before heading yeah. out to these places. And it was just great. And, and you had this sense of freedom and relieving firefighters. I mean, I, I knew relieving firefighters uh, on the beaches and some of them did it for um, well, they're in basically, basically their entire career. Mm. The downside of being a relieving firefighter, one of the downsides was sometimes you'd rock up to a, a fire station. I remember one night I rocked up to Glebe Fire Station. Uh-huh. And when I went in, everyone's kind of in their own rooms and it was a default sort of thing that you knew you had what was called the watchroom duty. Mm-hmm. Now, the watchroom duty and you'd, they didn't have proper beds in watchrooms, so there'd be some sort of uh, shitty mattress only that would be in some closet and you'd rip that out. I mean, when you think about how many people had slept on the, these things, I mean, some of them were just literally their springs popping out of them. And you always brought your own pillow as a, as a relieving fireman. And you had what was called a gear bag, which, which was basically this sack. And in the sack, you had all your gear and you'd go out. But sometimes you never, ever got to see the fireman or the SO because the SO would be in his office. And the weirdest thing, you'd come into a fire station like Glebe. You may never, ever have worked there before. You didn't know the, the area at all, mm. particularly if they were sort of Parramatta, Croydon, way, way out west. You didn't actually get to speak to or see any human being. You're, you're on the floor behind this desk. You'd sign on to the to, into this big book um, called the duty book. And then at three in the morning, the bells would go off. And so many times as a relieving firefighter, 
and it's pitch black. You don't know where the light switch is. You don't know where the toilet is. You fumble around. You roll off this mattress onto the floor. You jump up. You the alarms and you can hear footsteps because most fire stations are two-story and you can hear these guys coming down and they come into the watch room the motor driver stands he he rips the printout out of the uh, the, because the printer comes through the job all the details he's trying to figure out where he's going yeah and you're meeting these firefighters for the very first time they have never seen you before and i've never seen them and then you hop into the back of a fire engine because you never drive you're always in the back Mm-hmm. And depending on where you're sitting, depends on what you're going to do. You know that you're you and the guy, the stranger. You know you're the two guys that are going to go into the burning building, just the two of you. So you get the one thing that you would always do. I would always check my breathing apparatus, even though the motor driver had checked it at six o'clock that night. Yeah, because you're he checks everything at six. You're coming in at ten, three o'clock in the morning. There's a house alight. And you're heading off into the into the into this sort of weird oblivion. No one talks because you're all half asleep. Yeah, and and it could be a drill. You don't want to waste banter on a drill like a fire alarm. Yeah, an AFA automatic fire alarm. Yeah, um, yeah. It could be anything. Could be a, um, you know a multiple fatality. Could uh, could be a suicide. If if you're working at a station near railway tracks, very often you'd have. Um, Suicides on the tracks. Oh God! Um, and, and and severe, serious motor vehicle accidents. You know where you had, uh, if, particularly if they were deceased. Um, you, there's invariably a hell of a lot of blood, and mm. uh, you know you've got to hose the blood off the uh, off the roads and all shitty, rat shit, fucked up jobs like that. Um, and then you'd sort of, but because you were a professional firefighter, everything sort of, it's like interchangeable pieces. It doesn't matter who's in that seat. Oh, you're a cog in a machine. You're a cog right? and you know exactly what to do. Yeah. And you know where the gear is because the gear is stowed on an appliance in exactly the same place on every single appliance. So it doesn't matter one, what, what one of 80 fire stations in the metro area you're working in. You know that your goat bag, your buster bar, your lines are 38, your branches, your oxyviva blah, 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 blah. You know that it's all in the same pocket. And that's great. So that yep. kind of helps you. Mm. And then you you do what you had to do. And then you might sort of talk. But these fireys, I mean, look, you know, they don't know you. You don't know them. Everyone just wants to get back to the station. If you've been at a big fire, you've got a lot of wet hose. All the gear has to be cleaned and put up on the hose whips by that shift, you don't leave anything for the for the oncoming shift. Of course, yes. So yes, you I make know. you make you make good. The worst thing that can happen to a firefighter, well, one of the worst things is midwinter, mm-hmm. and at three in the morning. Oh, the hose is frozen, right? No, 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 no. They don't fro- freeze in Sydney. But here's here's something that I've never ever spoken about, but fires will relate to this: is when you have to do what's called a resto, and for whatever reason on earth. You get a call from uh, the engineering workshops, and they say we have we have a new appliance. Like your, see, well, they've got these appliances that um, are shared around all the stations. They're like, and they're not numbered. They're just um, back in when I was a fireman, they had SEV on them, and they're like these vehicles. They're the same as fire engines, but they have no equipment on board. So when they come out, if your fire engine is experiencing mechanical difficulty. They'll try and get a mechanic out to work on the problem in the engine bay. But if the mechanic says, look, this is a major drama, 
they then bring in um, not a fireman but a like a motor mechanic will bring in a spare fire engine they'll park it next to your fire engine and you have to restow so you have to take every single piece of equipment of which there are hundreds yeah. and you then have to transfer them all to the waiting appliance they then take away your appliance and they fix it sometimes i'm gonna have to tow it Sounds like a pit stop a, a pit stop but the thing is paul that i have been at stations that i have not ever worked at that i've never worked at before yeah and yeah. at two or three in the morning the lights go on the station officer says we have a restow so at two or three in the morning they bring in your original appliance and it can be pissing down midwinter the, the only bit of slightly good news is that you go offline because you can't respond. Oh, I see. Yeah, so you, there's no way you're going to get called. You're not going to get called out, but you have this job of completely reinstating every piece of equipment, including yeah. the ladders on top. Oh, no, although they used to generally stay, they were the one thing that actually stayed with the appliance yeah. and the uh, the big black hoses on top for um, for suction. But my point is that every all the cabers, yeah, everything. And then you so that's the resto. And then you go back online and then you're ready to respond. One of the things about being a, a relieving fireman. That's bananas. And you know what's funny is one of the things that occurred to me is that you said that the station officer, <clears throat> you know, knew you were a bit of a shit stirrer. It sounds yep. like, I th- is it fair to say that pranks were kind of a thing that you enjoyed partaking in when you were a fireman? I loved pranks. Do you have any choice pranks that you want to uh, give to a, give to the listeners before we wrap up? I'm not super proud of all of them. I don't want to sound like a complete flip. Are there any? Are there any? Have I ever told you the one about the guy that brought the um, the flares into the station? No. Okay. One way of people getting rid of flares, they're the ones used in boating. Mm. And if you set off a red flare out to sea, oh shit! I'm sorry. I thought you meant the pants. I was like, how is that a big deal? Okay. So you mean the actual the the little plastic gun with the single flare in it that you fire off like a yes, like but a-, a lot of these flares, Paul, mm. are actually a massive stick, like a stick of dynam- dynamite. Oh shit! And you take, and they're sort of they're wrapped in wax. So obviously, they're waterproof. And you strike the top, mm. and they begin to um, emit a massive, beautiful, sort of luminous, bright red light. Yeah. Um, and you can hold them, and if someone uh, sees you with the flare, that means an emergency. Okay. But that, but they would expire, so they were no longer safe to use because everything has an expiry date. And this particular guy at Forestville Fire Station one night came in with a bag full of these flares. Whoa. And uh, everyone had gone to bed. And I absolutely, I'd never ever um, used a flare before. So imagine they're around about an inch, inch and a half. But let's say they're, say, three centimeters in diameter. I'm just trying to convert. I mean, it's easy for me to say you know, a bit over an inch in diameter and maybe 12 inches high. And they had this strike cap on top. So it was like lighting a match, but major sort of, you had to really strike it hard. Once yep. it was struck and you set off this this sort of chemical reaction inside, two things happened. But when I decided to test out one of these flares, I did it at night time. It was about 11 o'clock. Everyone was in bed at Forestville. Mm-hmm. And I did it in the engine bay. I don't know why I did it in the engine bay. What? I just figured it would be... Well, if, if I did it outside and anyone sort of drove past, they, they might phone triple O and say, oh, there's an emergency. So I did it in, in, in the safety and the solitude <laughs> of the engine bay. You're right. It was and, very, and, yeah. and, and this amazing red glow, was, it was just... It was brilliant and, and it was super bright. And But 
what I was not aware of that whilst it was burning this this red flame for yeah. well it was some minutes. What do you think else was coming out of the flare? Uh, white smoke. Oh yeah, of course, of course, yes. And the engine bay was filling up with white smoke. <laughs> Fucking I hell. couldn't open the engine bay because it was a roller door and it would have made a lot of noise. And I certainly didn't want to piss the station officer off. Yeah. So I just kind of the entire engine bay filled with smoke, and eventually it all. And I went to bed. And there were no dramas. But when we woke up in the morning and we went out into the engine bay, the fire engine that historically was, as you know, they're red. Yeah. This particular one was was white. I had covered the entire red fire engine in fine soot. And it was everything was covered in... It was as though it had been in um, Chernobyl. I've, you'd never seen anything like it. That's there was this micro dust on everything, including all the firemen's uniforms. So every single thing in the engine bay, all four platoons, uniforms, boots, the, the engine, every single thing inside that engine bay was pure, as though it had snowed inside the engine bay. So that's... Uh, You're a bit of a nuisance, sounds like. Yeah, I, I did lots of other things, but we can talk about those in other, other sessions. There's, yeah, there's actually a relevant story that I think we should tell on this week's spin-off episode of Loose Ends, where you asked earlier in the episode, you said, I've probably never had to put out a fire. And I said, actually, I did one time. And oh, yes. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a banger of a story, so I think it's, we'll save it's, that. It's a, it's a good story, but it's also an incredibly dangerous thing that you did. Oh, you like, know it. We'll talk about it on, on we'll, Friday. Yeah, we'll talk about it on Friday. Right. Well, look, that concludes a very interesting episode of Loose Units Hot Stuff coming through. Thank you so much for all your kind words, everybody. If you have any questions for this week's episode of Loose Ends, because we do love going through listener questions, all you have to do to get a look in is head across to facebook.com forward slash Loose Units. And also, here is a big deal. You can get Loose Units, the physical book, Loose Units, in America now. We've put a link up on the Facebook page, so if you want to grab Loose Units and have it in your hands, and if you're an American, then please grab a copy of Loose Units, and we will have more news on the sequel book, Electric Blue, very, very shortly. Mm. Can I also thank everyone that's um, following me on Instagram? Yes. It's and what- incredible. I've got getting near 800 uh, people that are following me, which is just staggering, and I'm so oh. stoked and really happy about that. What's your Instagram handle for people who aren't already in on the... In it's on the John F. Verhoeven. And it's uh, Dad's, uh, frankly, very good photography, and we should have some more news on that very soon as well, without giving anything away. Thank you so much for listening to Loose Units. We hope you're all staying safe, and guess what? We'll see you at the end of the week for a piping hot episode of Loose Ends. Bye. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.